Cast Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Right. is out. Look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yes. Ready for the past ball show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli. Going to be here with you for the next two hours talking everything baseball. Always a reminder, continue to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Um, during the duration of the broadcast, I'll be happy to uh, reply to any and all mentions during the duration of my stuff to get into today man i want to talk a little carlos marmol i want to talk a little bit about the 2013 royals we got a couple interviews set up that i know you'll be happy to listen to i'm gonna talk a little larry doby but first we're gonna get into a little bit of talk about new york mets pitcher zach Wier- on tuesday june the 18th of course made his major league debut for the mets against the atlantic braves in the second game of a double header obviously through six scoreless innings and Obviously, the hype has been about this guy being a guy who could potentially be the next Dwight Gooden or maybe a Tom Seaver type, as New York Mets and their fans are looking with the hopes of finding somebody that could kind of carry that torch and be one of the big guys as this team looks to uh, rebuild itself from the tough situation it's been over the last about four or five seasons now. And listen, Wheeler in his performance in that June 18th game did nothing to let anybody down. Six scoreless innings. Uh, he seemed to get better as the game went on, was taken out with uh, pitches for his performance. And obviously he got the job done, but he's he's in a tough situation. You got to be honest. We all know Wheeler came over here to New York in the trade that sent Carlos Beltran to the San Francisco Giants. And you look at the regime, the run of Metzger Sanderson, and you just understand that not a lot has been done. Sandy Alderson has not done a ton to put his stamp on his team, but I tell you, one place that he has put his stamp on his team, and uh, certainly as as, as much as uh, maybe Zach Willer may not even want to think about, it, he's going to have a lot to do with it. And uh, I don't think there's any questioning the talent of this young man. He's a he's a young pitcher who throws the ball. 98 to 100 um, his, his uh, change up his slider his his, uh, his secondary pitches are phenomenal he certainly slots in as a guy 
one or number two starter on most pitching staffs. And a lot has to be said right now. I mean, he's got to go out there and pitch another three, four, five, six times before we could kind of have a little bit of a collective sample of what he's going to be or what we could think or our initial reactions as a major league pitcher. And as time goes on, we're going to see if he could become uh, what you know, a lot of the top in Verlander, David Price, uh, just to name a couple. But Wheeler is expected to be in that kind of classification as the years go on. The unfortunate thing about it, and it's not all—it's not Zach Wheeler's fault at all, but he is actually going to carry with him right now three specific, and they're all related to different things. Number one, he, the hype has been built up. The hype started to be built up well before he was traded from the San Francisco Giants to the New York Mets. They, you know, where he was drafted in, you know, in, in, in the draft, you know, he's taken number seven over in, in 2010. You know, it was expected that he was going to be a top of the line pitcher. He was that guy that came out of high school that had that arm that just needed a couple of years to develop in a minor league and was expected to be a star. The Giants knew that when they made a the trade, they sent him to the New York Mets, of course, on the, the first deal uh, for Carlos Beltran in the 2011 season. We all know that, but that's a burden that he's going to have to carry on his shoulders. The hype that's built up and you add that, obviously, you exacerbate it with the hype that involves playing in New York. That it, This is the first thing here We're to, when we're talking about hype. But you add the fact that he's pitching in New York and everything that he does from what he's done in the minors to this point to what he does on the mound in every single one of his starts is going to continue to be under the microscope. Everybody's going to look at it. They're going to analyze it. He throws 92 miles an hour for a fastball. They're going to say, hey, what's wrong with his velocity? He gives up a couple home runs. Hey, is he is, is he what, what he's expected to be? Can he really be that good? So there is the hype, the ability that Zach Wheeler is going to have to prove and his ability to dominate on the mound, which is something that all fans, as well as Zach Wheeler and the New York Mets, want to see happen. But add that to what has happened with Matt Harvey, particularly this season. Matt Harvey dealt with his own share of hype when he came up with the Mets last year. He made 10 starts. He, he did a good job, but obviously it was this year. And obviously you remember all the way it was, it was worded was that Matt Harvey was supposed to be good. Zach Wheeler was supposed to be better. And that's, you know, an unfortunate thing added to the hype, which I mentioned already. Now Matt Harvey has gone out there and Matt Harvey well, if not better than most other pitchers in Major League Baseball this year. Matt Harvey has found himself. If you quote the New York Mets catcher John Buck in regards to the doubleheader, no offense against Zach Wheeler, but I'd rather catch Matt Harvey because of what he's proven already. So Matt Harvey to this point, seven and you know, he's been one of the best, if not the best pitcher in the National League. You could throw in a Clayton Kershaw. You could throw in uh, Patrick Corbin, a couple other guys that have pitched well, Cliff Lee. But Matt Harvey is certainly up there, and he's up there in the entire Major League Baseball based on his performance and his ability to dominate on the mound. Wheeler now has to deal with the hype. Is he better than Matt Harvey? Is he going to go out there and try to say, based on his performance and his actions, that he is better than Matt Harvey? It's a tough thing to do. It's tough to be seven and one with a two oh five ERA. Um, you know that young in your career. So you've watched not just Wheeler but Matt Harvey as they've progressed themselves through uh, the minor league systems, and they've taken some lumps at each of the different levels. So if Zach Wheeler goes out and has a couple bad starts, all of a sudden 
the uh, negativity is going to surround him and people are just going to say, hey, Matt Harvey, he's not even as good as Matt Harvey. So that's another burden that Zach Wheeler is going to have to deal with when he when he uh, continues to make and has enough of a sample size to be able to evaluate what he has done this year. But understand this, that if he has a couple bad starts, if he finishes and he pitches this year, it doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean he's not a top pitcher. It doesn't mean he won't be a top pitcher. But it's added to the burdens of what Zach Wheeler is going to have to deal with here. The hype, living up to Matt Harvey, and of course, the third one, which has nothing to do with him at all and has to do with general manager Sandy Alderson. Sandy Alderson made this bold move. He obviously got a top pitcher back for Carlos Beltran when he made that trade in 2011, his first year on the job. I just mentioned before, Sandy Alderson has done little to put his stamp on his team. The part of the so-called stamp on the New York Mets involves Zach Wheeler. And how much of that is going to be on Zach Wheeler's mind? Now, you know, there's been talks about how tough of a, a mentally tough pitcher that Matt Harvey is. And, you know, the way he speaks, what he says and the way he says it. Uh, there's not necessarily doubts about Zach Wheeler, but he doesn't have the same personality. And the question is going to be, how does he deal with these three different burdens? Because you got the hype. And obviously, plenty of pitchers have gone out there and been given all the hype in the world to be the next great thing and have not panned. You got the comparisons now, which weren't there last year because Matt Harvey wasn't established yet. Now that Matt Harvey has not only made it to the major leagues, but has established himself as one of the top pitchers in all of Major League Baseball, Zach Wheeler may have to feel like he has to live up to Matt Harvey. And then, of course, on Sandy Alderson's legacy. Because Zach goes out there and fails. If he becomes a failure, if he pitches the next three years, doesn't accomplish anything, and the Mets move him, and maybe he becomes the next Mike Pelfrey or, you know, even worse, a Kevin Mulvey type or a uh, Philip Humber type. I know Philip Humber pitched a perfect game, but if you look at Philip Humber, you would know that he has not panned out as a big-time pitching prospect. If he becomes any of them, it's going to have a huge impact on Sandy Alderson and his the job that he's doing with the New York Mets because Zach Wheeler is one of the key players that Sandy Alderson has done little else. He made the R.A. Dickey trade for Travis Darno and John Buck and Noah Syndergaard and William Bertara. We understand that, but he has done very little else. He extended David Wright. He extended Jonathan Neese. Um, he extended R.A. Dickey, but he has not done a lot. The Frank Francisco signing is very but he has done little to put his stamp on this team. So it's very important to see what happens with Zach Wheeler because it's going to have a direct correlation between Sandy Alderson and the job that he is doing. If, if Zach Wheeler becomes an ace or becomes a 1A or a number two, then it's going to look like Sandy Alderson did a great job. If it doesn't work out that way, you know, a lot of questions are going to be raised as far as the job that Sandy Alderson is doing as general manager. So I think those are really three very interesting points and interesting things to think about when you're watching Zach Wheeler. I wouldn't overanalyze. Like, I mean, many pitchers have gone out there. If you look at Justin Verlander as a rookie, if you look at, you know, even David Price when he was starting for the first time, remember he came up at the end of the 2008 season as a, as a relief pitcher, of course, pitching in a World Series against the Phillies. But you know, struggled his first season as a young award winner. So uh, a bad start doesn't mean 
that it's going to be a bad pitcher. And obviously, there's been nothing done to this point to to, under, to uh, make you think that Zach Wheeler is, is even off to a bad start. So it's all things that have to be considered in regards to Zach Wheeler. Once again, show MTR Radio Network. We're going to move on to a couple other things. And, um, you know, I think if you rate relief pitchers in Major League Baseball, particularly over the last three, four seasons, uh, you know, you got the top pitchers, of course, the Marianos of the world, uh, Jonathan Papelbon, you know, has had, he's been one of the top pitchers. You look at a lot of the top closers in Major League Baseball. There's also been some attention paid to some of the not so great closers, the ones who have struggled and nobody has struggled really over the past three or so seasons more than Chicago Cubs closer. And obviously you followed a couple weeks ago the New York Mets playing a game at home, 3 nothing lead. They're totally quiet the whole game. Lead-off home run by Marlon Byrd, a single, a walk, and then a walk-off three-run home run by Kirk Neuenheis. Yes, it happens to pitchers, but doesn't seem to happen to any pitcher often than Carlos Marmol. And Carlos Marmol was designated for assignment this past week by the Chicago Cubs. And, you know, not that I don't think this guy deserves a job, but it, it's something that I think was deserved based on his performance. I mean, there have been few closers that have come into games as Carlos Marmol has shown. And here's a guy that has gone out there, and let's be honest, he just has not gotten the job done for an extended period of time now. And I think the best thing for the Chicago Cubs w- was to, you know, at least take him off the roster here. I mean, I don't know if he wants to make down in the minor leagues to maybe save his career, maybe work on some mechanics, maybe develop another pitch. But here's a guy that has been that bad for a while. And the, and he, he, let's be honest, he's become an absolute liability to the Chicago Cubs as they're trying to rebuild. I mean, this is a team trying to get better, trying to get younger. And Marmol, of course, signed a, a deal. He signed a, a three-year, $20 million contract uh, before the 2011 season. He's due to be a free agent at the end of the season. But he got paid for what he did in 2010, which was probably his best season. Two and three, five, 38 saves, 138 strikeouts and 77 and two-thirds innings. You look at that, you look at that track record, that those numbers, and you realize this is a guy that's probably worth keeping, worth extending. But it seems like once he signed that deal, that extension with the Chicago Cubs, I know he three years most teams are going to be able to wash that off they could release a guy on that and be able to deal with it look what the Mets did with Luis Castillo and Oliver Perez even even a guy like Jason Bay so Carlos Marmol for whatever he was supposed to make about seven million this this past season the Cubs can do without it and but here's a big but he has been god-awful and it's kind of been a slow progression to the downward uh, spiral that has been Carlos Marmol over the last three seasons. 2011, he ended up uh, only he gave up he gave up five home runs. He struck 74 innings pitched. Uh, his whip jumped to 1.38. It looked like he was a lot more hittable. He finished the season with a four ERA, 34 saves. I think people can respect and understand a down season for a closer. Last year, he pitched in just 61 games. Manny saw his strikeouts per nine innings pitch drop again and just seemed very hittable. I mean, his whip went up to 1.5, over 1.5. It, it, it's, it's, it's a spiral that's going out of control. And finally, this season is really where it's reared its ugly head. And it's unfortunate. I, I wouldn't doubt the fact that he's trying. 
I don't think anybody wants to go out there and get rocked like he seems to do on a regular and everyday basis. But it's gotten to a point where he just cannot be trusted to go on the mound at any point. And I do blame Dell Swaim a little bit for, for using him in spots as a closer, such as the 3 nothing lead against the Mets a couple Sundays ago. I mean, to me, that's something that you, you shouldn't do. I absolute front of your bullpen in mop-up duty let him regain his confidence and obviously this DFAing may actually work out for the best for him he could end up uh, working on some stuff in the minors maybe developing another pitch maybe kind of work on some mechanics and save his career but I'm running him out there as a closer bad job by Dale Swaim absolute bad job but Marmol did nothing to make his case this year two and four 586 ERA in 31 games two saves uh, you know strikeouts getting you know less and less per nine innings pitch than, than it was just just a over he got 25 hits 16 runs four home runs and if you remember I'm sorry six home runs already nine is 26 hits 18 earned runs you're looking at a guy that just kind of had to go. I mean, his whip is up at almost 1.7. It's pretty much time to make the move and to kind of move on from Carlos Marmol and hopefully the Cubs uh, try to figure out what they want to do here. But taking him off the 40-man roster is probably the best thing for him. I mean, he's not getting any better out there. I don't know if he has a chance to resurrect his career at age 30. Uh, I think a good thing to watch if he goes down to the minors if he takes an outright release to see how he throws the ball he may be a guy worth taking a chance on a minor league deal after this offseason but it's it's a fall far from grace uh Eve. it's a far fall from grace from a guy that really was one of the premier relief pitchers i mean he put numbers in 2010 that would make you think craig kimbrell i mean he was that good that season and, uh, you know, listen, I mean, I, I've, I've knocked him. I, honestly, I've taken my, my shots out on him and say, listen, I mean, I, I, I want to put him together. And maybe, maybe some of my, uh, my listeners can help me out with this. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. I'm trying to put together the relief pitchers that pitch ninth innings that have the most blown saves of three runs. Because, you know, you talk about, you know, the three-run league, the most watered-down part of the save statistic. But what does that say to a pitcher that consistently blows three-run leads in the ninth inning? And honestly, for the life of me, whether it's baseball reference, retrosheet.org, the internet, Google, uh, Bing, whatever, I can't flip the, the, the pitchers that have given up the most three-run leads in the ninth inning. And honestly, I think that's something that would be worth talking about. So if, if you have any information, tweet at me, at John underscore PLE. Make this thing happen. Let's go. Um, we're going to take our first break of the day. Lots more stuff going on. I want to hit up a couple interviews. We're going to sprinkle in back after this. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We'll offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. 
Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise an MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. MTR. Yes, welcome back. This is the Passball Show, of course, on the MTR Radio Network. John Pielli, check me out, johnpielli.com, mtrmedia.com. Uh, we got all the shows archived, all the interviews that I've done, and obviously a lot of different stuff going on with Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. Um, within the show, we're going to go over a couple things, a couple of my latest articles. Of course, got a couple interviews set up. Time because I think over the last couple shows, I've spent a lot of time discussing the American League East, the NL West, even the National League East. But I haven't spent a lot of time talking about uh, a team that probably had a lot of promise coming into the season, a team that their general manager, their ownership, the whole thing, they went out there and said, listen, we're going to go for it this year. And to this out. And of course, I'm talking about the Kansas City Royals, the Kansas City Royals. Uh, at the moment of, the, of this broadcast, of uh, me recording the show, are 35 and 38, and in no way, shape, or form expected to be at the level that they are. And there's a lot of things that haven't gone right for this team, but let's go over a couple of things that we talked about in the previews, you know, before the season started. We talked about the fact that the Royals went out there and got themselves some good starting pitching. And let's be honest, their starting pitching is not the issue here at all. I mean, it's an unfortunate thing. I mean, James Shields has gone out there and been been as good as that is going to throw his 230 innings. He's going to get his 200 strikeouts. He's going to get his maybe five, six complete games. The only thing that he's missing is wins. They're not scoring enough runs for him. He's sitting there at 2-6, 292 ERA. Another guy that they got that I think some people actually uh, had had an issue with, they'd go for the Kansas City Royals has turned out to be a phenomenal move for them, and that was the trade for Urban Santana. Irvin Santana came over from, uh, from, from the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim coming off of a couple really tough seasons. And all Irvin ha- Santana has done is gone out there and pitched well. He's 5-5 five and five with a 260 throwing innings. He's, you know, he'll give up his share of home runs, but he's kept people off the bases when it's happened. He's pitched to an under one whip, which has been phenomenal. I mean, here's a guy that you know doesn't walk a lot of batters. He's only had 15 walks in 99 innings. Irvin Santana was a coup 
for Dayton Moore, City Royals. So you look at that, you add Wade, Wade Davis in there. You add Jeremy Guthrie in there. The, the Royals have put out four starting pitchers that they didn't have before. And I know Guthrie was with them towards the end of last season. But for the most part, Shields and Santana are pitching in a league of their own. Guthrie's have been good. I mean, you look even at their fifth starter, Luis Mendoza, the right-hander. I mean, he's not giving you as much innings-wise, but he is all, he, he's pitching to a 4-3 ERA, which is uh, respectable in the American League, a 1.44 whip. And then you look at the fact that they can led by closer Greg Holland, the right-hander. He's got 44 strikeouts and 28 innings, a 193 ERA to 16 saves. He's, he's been solid at the end of the game. Luke Hoshiver, the number one draft pick from about five years ago, has made a good adjustment to the bullpen. He's been a good thing pitching to a 267 ERA. Tim Collins, the flamethrowing left-hander. Strikeouts per nine inning pitched are down a little bit, but he's gotten a job done, a 233 ERA. Even Aaron Crow, despite a couple bad outings here and there, has pitched well. This is a pitching staff that has gotten a job done. You got been a surprise as a left-handed reliever a guy who i think a lot of us didn't think he could make a transition to a reliever has gotten a job done the reason the kansas city royals have struggled has been their anemic offense and their offense has not been at a level where it, it could be considered respectable and eric Hosmer who has struggled but has hit better lately mike moustakis is hitting just 207 uh, alex gordon He's putting up a 758 OPS, but that's down to what he's given the team over the last couple seasons. Jeff Francoeur has been terrible. Billy Butler, who's, who was a home run hitter for them over the last five seasons, has not been performing at the level that he's expected to. Alicides Escobar, who was a guy that I said was a very wise fantasy baseball pick because he was a guy on the rise, has not given them very much. It's been a disappointing offensive run but another thing, and I've taken shots at this guy. I did it last year, and it ended up, uh, you know, it ended up sticking with him. It's all going to fall on the shoulders of manager Ned Yost. Ned Yost is in a position where this team either has to start winning, or he's going to be looking for another place of employment. He had some Milwaukee, where that team just could not get itself over the hump. And obviously after he left and Ron Renneke took over, they became a playoff team. Yes, they've taken a step back in the last two years, but they made their playoff run in 2011 with Ron Renneke at the helm. I, I, I think there just are not quality major league managers. And I think you get to a point where you start to doubt whether Ned Yost is the guy that should be in charge of this team for the foreseeable future. And if I had to choose one manager that I would probably see lose their job for their own team, it would be Ned Yost at this point. And I think that's something that really has to be looked into. And let's get into this for a second because you know me, or for those of you who know me and follow me and listen to my show, know that I'm one of the bigger apologists when it comes to managers. But I also understand that there's a certain time that enough is enough. I mean, I understand why managerial changes are made. I know that a lot of managers are losing their jobs because of stuff that's out of their control. You know, case in point, Terry Collins. Disagree with me or not, Terry Collins is in a position now where his team is a lot worse than it was when he took over at the beginning of the 2011 season. I mean, you cannot deny that. You have 
mismanagement of the bullpen. Do you want to say that overall he hasn't done a good job? Uh, I think I think it's kind of split between people that, that think that he's done the best with what he's got and people that are just out to get him. I'm not like that when it comes to managers. But you look at the situation in Kansas City with Ned Yost. Guy been here for a, a couple years now. It's not like he just took over. He took over this team in 2010 in the middle of the season. You know, they, they, brought up, they brought him in in the middle of the 2010 season. He replaced Trey Hillman. And Trey Hillman is, of course, the bench coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's been there now. For the rest of that season, the last two seasons, the team has lost 90 game, 91 games and 90 games in 2011 and 2012. This is a team that, through the draft, has built itself to a point where it can be considered contenders. And I understand that isn't out of it by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, look at the Phillies. I mean, I know there's some panic mode in Philadelphia. They, they really feel that it might be time to blow this thing up. But... You know, look at what happened with the Toronto Blue Jays. They were six, seven, eight, nine games under 500, and they had a they had a winning on track because they were a good team. The same thing could happen in Kansas City. Same thing could happen in Philadelphia. I wouldn't rule this team out. I don't think they're done, but I will say this: Ned Yost has got to be on the biggest hot seat out of any manager in Major League Baseball. And you look at the team. They got be honest a lot of the young players have come through and established themselves as major leaguers from salvador perez the catcher from hosmer to mistakis and of course mistakis has struggled no question about it lorenzo kane even jeff frank core and alex gordon are only 29 young team billy butler's 27 I mean, you look at the young players that they have on this team that have established themselves. They, they shouldn't have issues with that, that they have with this offense. George Brett has come out there. He's helped Eric Hosmer out a lot. They made the move. They fired the hitting coach. They brought George Brett in and he you know, average up to 275. Is that the turning point? Well, you're still looking at a team that's 35 and 38 and a team that's getting very good starting pitching. And James Shields with a 2-6 and six record and a 292 ERA. That could not make the point any stronger about how bad this is. You know, James Shields is a guy that is going out there giving you about seven innings every start. And you could tell, 16 starts, 111 innings pitched. Obviously, he's given innings. It's not that he's getting out of the game in the fifth or sixth inning. He's usually pitching into the seventh and usually gets through seven. And then you got Irvin Santana, like I said before. The pitchers have gotten the job done in this team. Obviously, they made the move. They changed hitting coaches, thinking that it was an offensive problem. Maybe it's a managerial problem. This is where you start to think of why Major League get relieved of their duties and replaced. Because you get these enigmas here. You, under, you try to figure out the Kansas City Royals have built a team for the last several seasons that has gotten the job done. As far as building offensive players, look at Alex Gordon's track record. I know he struggled last year, but look at what he did as a rookie. Look at the ability that a lot of these young players have had. I mean, even Salvador Perez, who is only 23 years old, has had limited major league experience. He has proven that he could be an everyday catcher, both offensively and defensively. He is even old of a Yadier Molina. He could be the next one. And it's just not happening. And, uh, you know, do I want to suggest who would be the best fit? I don't think it's necessarily, uh, you know, you need a guy to go in there and knock some heads around. But, you know, Larry Bow is a guy that I'd like to see back. 
is a competent major league manager in, in deserving of another chance. You know, we've talked about some other guys that are no longer in the game. I'm not I'm not saying bring a Lou Pinella out of retirement. I don't think that's going to work. But, you know, you look at some other guys that are around. And Met fans, listen, feel free to get on me. From a Major League Baseball fan perspective, not as a Met fan perspective, what do you think the impact of a guy like Wally Backman would have on the Kansas City Royals? Think about that. Here's a guy that's getting his first crack as a major league manager. He, he's, he's managed the last four years in a minor organization, and he gets a shot midseason with a team that's young but still ready to compete. And with his first chance to be that guy, the first chance to be that guy that, that, that could uh, spring the team and energy will fly through that clubhouse. And the exact opposite of what's going on with the New York Mets. What promise do you have about the 2013 Mets? Absolutely none. Maybe the 2015 Mets seem like they're they're on a better track than the 2013 Mets. 2014 is still in the realms of discussion and possibility to this point. But Wally Backman coming to the New York Mets in 2013 to me does nothing. And I don't think it's going to change things. You might have a, you might get a couple wins, but it's not going to make the Mets a playoff team. But Wally Backman going to the Kansas City Royals, he's got a chance to get himself into the postseason. He has a chance to resurrect this ship and become the guy and make this his team. So if I had one suggestion, I would absolutely, as a baseball fan, suggest that Wally Backman be considered by the Kansas City Royals Ned Yost. We all know that if George Brett wanted to be the manager, he would be. But he doesn't want the job. But how about how about an up-and-comer, a guy that has proven himself a little bit? And honestly, I think it would take a little pressure off the New York Mets. You know, Terry Collins is sitting there as a lame duck knowing that he's practicing, but he doesn't need all the talk of Wally Backman sticking over his shoulder. I mean, to me, it's just, it's just much to do about nothing. Obviously, you know it's New York, the fans, the way they are, the whole thing. You know that's why that you know people act like that. But I'll tell you, some other teams are as a viable candidate. And let's be honest, Wally Backman's not going to turn the job down from Kansas City uh, to stay as the minor league manager of AAA Las Vegas. Especially when there's no guarantee that the Mets are going to hand him the job once Terry Collins' reign has ended. And I'll tell you, I good spot for a lot of different people. The Kansas City Royals organization it would be a good spot for Wally Backman. It would be a good spot for a lot of the younger players who have a manager in Wally Backman that has a lot of experience with a lot of young and up-and-coming players. And you could add to the resume what has happened with Ike Davis, and we'll get into this in a little bit when we talk about a comparison with Ike Davis. But listen, he's got Ike Davis in four games, all of a sudden getting himself back. He's kicked off a couple of glitches in the guy's swing. And sure, sure enough, Ike Davis is hitting. You put that all, and that makes him a prime candidate as a manager. Not necessarily to take over the New York Mets as their skipper, but I think it would be a perfect fit in Kansas City with the Royals. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show and TR Radio Network. Back after. Not sure what you want to eat? An omelet works anytime. How about a golden brown waffle with warm syrup? 
Ogie's Omelette Waffle House and Grill is an Ocean City tradition since 1991. They're open year-round at 9th Street and Atlantic Avenues, just steps off the famous Ocean City boardwalk. Augie's serves an affordable and expansive breakfast, lunch, seniors, and kids menu all day long. They know how to put a happy smile on everyone's face. Visit our website at augiesocnj.com or give us a call, 609-391-0222. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and come visit us in person at 9th Street and Atlantic Avenues, just steps off the famous Ocean City Boardwalk. Also visit Augie's Doggies in Smithville, 609-391-0222 and augiesocnj.com. More than omelets, breakfast, and brunch, it's happiness served on a platter. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. Welcome back. Passball Show MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli. Right now, I'm going to play an interview that I recorded earlier today with former Major League pitcher Rusty Meacham. Rusty pitched for the Tigers, the Kansas City Royals, and a couple other teams throughout a, a five, seven-year career. Was a pretty good reliever at one point. So, I uh, hope you guys enjoy. All right. This is John Pielli, Passball Show MTR Radio Network. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Rusty Meacham. Rusty, what's going on, buddy? Uh, just getting set up for a camp here in my town to try to give some of our knowledge uh, we've learned in our time to these young kids. And if we help one kid, then we do our job. No, absolutely. Now, you know, just for a couple minutes, tell us a little bit about the camp and you know how anybody uh, you know that wants to get involved can. Well, basically, uh, we have a website here in my uh, hometown. It's www.18teams.com slash Martin County Fallball. And you can go online and register, or you can register on, uh, uh, you can sign up on the spot. And basically, we just go over all, uh, you know, facets of the game, just how to play the game correctly, how to field the ball the right way, how to throw the ball, catch the ball, hit the ball, just all the fundamentals of the game of baseball to make them a better player. Yeah, no question about it, dude. Now, you know, going back to your you know playing career, you're obviously 
play uh, pitch professionally for 18 seasons, you know, and uh, really had some of your best success with the Kansas City Royals. But, um, you know, when you started out, tell us a little bit about coming up in a Detroit Tigers organization and then playing for Sparky Anderson in 1991. Well, I tell you, um, baseball is just a very, very tough game, first of all. And, you know, uh, a lot of fans go behind the scenes. You know, what we go through, the, the travel, you know, on the buses constantly. It's funny, myself and Alex Arias were driving in a car yesterday talking about all the buses we've been on in our time and, you know, just all the stuff you go through, the ups and downs, and uh, it's just a very, very tough game, and, you know, that's also what we try to teach is, you know, the mental toughness part of this game because the game is 90% mental toughness and 10% ability, um, no doubt about it. But uh, on the other hand, your other question, uh, playing for Sparky Anderson was a real treat for me. I mean, you know, one of the best managers of all time, and I think he's the only, one of the only guys, I think, other than Tony DeRusso to win a World Series in both leagues. So, yes. very, very um, awesome time in my career to bubble play for that guy. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Rusty Meacham. Now, you know, you end up being claimed on waivers by the Kansas City Royals, which turned out to really be a blessing for you. It seems like that you have the best success of your career there, particularly in 1992. You, you have the 20, you have the 27 scoreless innings. You know, you end up pitching to you know a 2.74 ERA, throwing over 100 innings that year. Tell us a little bit about what went right in the 1992 season. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, you're back home and you get claimed off of waivers and you're kind of disappointed, you know, because I, I really enjoyed my time with the Tigers, but I just didn't think maybe I fit in at the time. And, you know, you look back on it now, just like you said, things happen for a reason in life. And I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I went over to Kansas City. Uh, I got my actual first chance uh, with the Royals by an injury. Uh, by Luis Aquino and you know you don't wish injuries upon anybody but sometimes that's what it takes to get a chance and I just got an opportunity and you know I was in the right place right time with uh, Hal McRae who's one of the best managers I've ever played for and he gave me an opportunity and I just went out and I made the best of it and you know like he said I had my best uh, year that year and uh, the most gratifying thing about all the time with the Royals is probably Two or three years ago, I found out I was like one of the hundred greatest Royals to ever play, and that's an awesome team. No, I, I tell you, that, that is kind of special to be a part of that group, and the Royals do have a very good history with a lot of different players that have uh, made a big impact. Now. You end up, you know, uh, you know, kind of, kind of uh, enduring yourself to the fans a little bit there. You know, there's, uh, you know, there, there's things where you, you, you know, you were spraying the right field fans with the bullpen hose and stuff like that. You know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, the interaction there and your relationship with the Kansas City fans. You know what, John? The bottom line is one thing that uh, Rusty Meacham has always remembered that without fans, I'm not who I am. I don't do what I do. Without fans sitting in the stands, it's no fun for me. So one day I'm sitting out in the bullpen on a smoldering day out there, and somebody goes to me, uh, you should pick up the hose and, and carry on the tradition that Dan Quisenberry used to do out there. And I picked it up one day, started spraying the fans, having fun on a hot, smoldering day. And uh, next day I see in the paper, uh, they're calling me the 
Springer player. So it was an awesome time for me. I, and I started doing it uh, on the hot smoldering days from then on. And uh, the fans loved me because, you know, I interacted with them and I made them feel like, you know, they were a part of me because they are. Because without them, I wouldn't be who I am. Now, listen, that's a great way to look at it. And, and listen, a lot. I, I think a lot of players do agree with what you say as far as the fans being, you know, the reason that you're there. But, uh, you know, it's not it's not said as much. And I, I really do think you make a great point there that, you know, listen, you, you guys play a game, but, you know, it's essentially the people that come to the ballpark that are paying your salaries. You're exactly right. You know what? I've always remembered from the first time I've ever played this game, I am a humble, lucky guy to do what I do. And it's my job to be a good person. And the greatest thing about myself now is I still get fan mail on the, fan mail on the mail all the time. And I sign it immediately and I send it back. And, and that's just who I am. I'm, I'm no better than anybody. I know I played up there for a long time, but it doesn't make me any better. It's just a game. And I loved what I did. And I just want all the people out there, to, whoever watched me play, that I went out there with uh, energy every ever stepped on the field and gave it my all. No, absolutely, man. I tell you, yeah, in addition to the, you know, to the to the clinics and stuff that you do now, you should probably uh, do a couple classes for some uh, up and coming players and some current players, and just you know, just let it, let them know about the importance of that because I think it's something that you know doesn't get looked at as much today and probably should. You are so right, and you know I've seen it in my career. And these guys make all this money, and you know you gotta be good to the fans. I mean, because like I said, and I'm being truthful when I say this, man, this it wouldn't be any fun to play sports without any people in the stands. And I went down yesterday, and I was amongst all the fans down there in Miami. I took my sons down there, and it's just amazing the fans, and you know how they enjoyed the, the different sports and how they showed up yesterday for their final meeting. You know, it's amazing. Without them, we wouldn't do what we do. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John P. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Rusty Meacham. Now, listen, Ed, I'm back on to your playing career. After you were done uh, pitching for Kansas City, you ended up in a Seattle organization playing for Lou Pinella. You got a chance to uh, go back as a starter during the 1996 season. Tell us a little bit about that transition and how you felt about it after being a reliever for, what, about five years or so? You know, it wasn't really that tough for me because I was always a starter with the Tigers, uh, so it wasn't that uh, big of a deal. I was a guy that was able to do everything, and then you have some guys that can just start and then some guys that can just relieve. Well, I was lucky enough to be a guy that was able to do all of it, and you know, uh, they needed a starter at the time, and Lou Pinnell asked me, hey, do you, do you want to start? And obviously, if you're going to give me the baseball and I can get some more innings in, then I'm going to take it. But I really enjoyed being a reliever better because I could come to the ballpark and know I had a chance to pitch every day, whereas a starter, you had to wait every five days before you get back on the mound. But uh, I enjoyed my time in Seattle. Great fans. And, you know, I mean, what a good time I had. Yeah, no question about it. Now, as you as you move on, you get a chance to play for Hal McRae again, and you know you had mentioned him before playing with him from '92 to '94 with Kansas City, but he also uh, takes over, you know, uh, 14 games into the season for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays in 2001 when you were playing there. So tell us a little bit about you know how, how you liked playing for Hal McRae. 
know, I enjoyed, first of all, we'll talk about Larry Rothschild was there before Hal McCray got there, and then Hal McCray took over, and, you know, that was just, uh, you know, like, uh, I was rejuvenated because here I have this manager that knows, you know, what I can do, and, uh, you know, I think in uh, Tampa, I was just in the wrong place. Uh, we were not a good team that year. We went, like, 62 and 100, and they decided they wanted to go with uh, some young guys at Jose Colome, and, you know, it was disappointing because I got sent down uh, to AAA, and I went down there, and if you look at the numbers, that was pretty much my last year uh, with Tampa Bay. I went to the Myers, and AAA, I saved 15 out of 15 games with a point. Uh, 870 RA, and I never got a chance to get a professional ball. But I really enjoyed playing for Hal McCray. I just think Tampa Bay was just not a good fit for me at the time because they wanted to go with you. Yeah, now you end up you end up pitching in independent ball for about what five about five seasons overall before you finally uh, hang it up after 2010. Any any regrets as far as not getting another uh, another shot at the major leagues at that point? question about it. Listen, Rusty, I want to thank you for having some time today. A lot of great stuff, man, and uh, best of luck for everything you're doing with the Academy. John, thank you for having me, and I want to tell all the people, check out my book I have in the store. It's, uh, it's called The Physics of Pitching. All right, cool. Definitely take a look at the book, and uh, listen, Rusty, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that spot there. Rusty Meacham, former Major League pitcher. A uh, couple good things, man. You know, spraying the, spraying the fans in right field, being kind of a fan favorite, carrying out the whole Dan Quisenberry thing beforehand. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, an interesting guy. And, you know, obviously wish him the best with everything he's doing with the uh, the baseball camp and the academy and the whole thing. Uh, finishing up the front something a guy that I don't think gets enough respect and you know it's a, it's unfortunate when you talk about the things that happened with uh, segregation and stuff and you know Major League Baseball not 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 just Major League Baseball but the whole country not uh, acknowledging the African-American uh, person as well as athlete was the second uh, you know Major League Baseball player of African-American descent to play in the history of Major League Baseball and was the first in the American League he was also the second African-American manager in the history of Major League Baseball only only uh, Frank Robinson did it before him of course in, uh, within the last week or so, June 18th, 2003. So uh, 2013 is the 10-year anniversary of his passing at age 79. And, of course, uh, you know, listen, the Jackie Robinson story is obviously one of its own. You can't duplicate it. You can't, you can't say that there's through what Jackie Robinson did. But I think you can make a case that Dobie, being the first African-American player in the American League, went through a lot of similar things. Maybe not the whole deal. Maybe it wasn't as bad for him, but I'm sure it was pretty bad. Here's a guy that, you know, there was no other player in that was in the American League that, you know, had to go through what Larry Dobie went through. He made his Major League debut on July 5th which was a couple months after Jackie Robinson made his debut, of course, on April 15th, you know, the day that we honor every year, and deservedly so. Um, Dolby kind of 
was not given much of a chance that season. Um, you know, he's just kind of a guy that hung around on a roster. He didn't get a chance to play a lot. He got just 32 at-bats. He just 156. A lot of people kind of wanted to push him out just saying he wasn't good enough and good enough based on numbers and kind of holding that to say that, hey, you know, maybe can't play in the American League. But he got a chance to earn a job as the starting starting center fielder of the Indians in 1948. And what was significant about 1948? Well, yes, Indian fans know that that he, he, the, uh, was the last time that they went out there and won the World Series. You know, they obviously beat the Boston Braves that season. They, you know, he, he ends up being a centerpiece of that team, hitting 301. 14 home runs, 88 RBIs, 83 runs scored in just 121 games. He was also 7 for 22 with a home run in the World Series that year. Dolby would remain the Indians real several seasons, putting up solid power numbers, 230 home run seasons, 400 RBI seasons, finished second in the AL MVP voting in the 1954 season. And what was significant about that? The Indians made the World Series that year. That was their last AL pennant until 41 years later in 1995. Mike Cargrove, of course, was a guest on the past ball show. He had 272, 32 home runs, 126 RBIs for the Indians as they won the pennant that year. And his, but, but his two for 16 had a say in the Indians' four-game loss to the uh, San Francisco Giants. Doby ends up matching the Sox in 1978, uh, obviously the second manager after Frank Robinson to be African-American and have the opportunity to be a major league manager. To me, what bothers me about this is the fact that 1998 comes and Larry Doby inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. And I'm glad that Doby was able to, to have the, uh, the enshrinement, the honor, the whole thing while he was still alive. Of course, he passed away five years later. But there was a couple seasons that Doby lost, similar to what you could say with Robin, the lack of integration. Um, his 1947 season, like I said, he was a bench player. He wasn't really given a fair chance to play. And here's a guy that doesn't get inducted into Baseball Hall of Fame until 1998. And I think his story, while it's probably not up there with the Jackie Robinson, it's got to be one that, honestly, who, who else other than Jackie Robinson went through anything worse than what Larry Doby went through? I mean, being the first African-American player in the entire American League... You tell me he didn't go through the same abuse? I mean, you saw how bad it was. Didn't want to run him out there that first season. He was a he was a utility player. He was a guy that came in to just kind of run a little bit. He was only given an at-bat or two a game. And, and, it, and that was almost used as a way to try to get him out of the league. I, I bet you the Cleveland Indians probably went out there and said, hey, he's a 156 hitter. He's not good. Tell me, tell me that isn't more demoralizing or as demoralizing. I mean, he got a chance to play. And listen, Jackie Robinson made the most of it. He led the, the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947 to the National League pennant. And for what he did years later, of course, that great team with Robinson and Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder, the whole thing. Larry Doby almost got banished from baseball after a 156 job in 32 at-bats in 29 games. You play in 29 games and you're back. That's not a fair shot. And the Indians were wise enough to use Doby and say that, listen, he, he's a guy that deserves a fair chance before they're willing to give up on him. And glad they did. And Larry Doby, like I said, lost a couple years because of, uh, because of the integration and not happening until 19. And he's a guy that, in my opinion, belonged in a Hall of Fame 
if not 20 years earlier than he was, then at least 15. I mean, he should have been in the Hall of Fame in the 80s, if not the very late 70s. So uh, here's to Larry Doby. Obviously, 10-year anniversary of his death. One of the better players in baseball that I don't think gets enough respect and uh, tribute paid towards him. So I want to thank everybody for being part of the show this hour. Of course, Rusty Meacham, thanks for having a couple minutes. We'll be back with a second hour to pass ball show right back after.